Christmas. Uh, so today is the day that traditionally you're supposed to get 12 drummers drumming, but this is the Church of Christ, so we didn't bring them with us. Uh, also, this is supposedly the first day of a new, or first Sunday worship of a new decade. So isn't that special that we're here together to start a brand new decade, except I am one of the 22% of Americans that is holding out in belief that this is not yet the new decade because there was no year zero. We started with year one and ended with year 10. And so we started with 11 and ended with 20. So the new decade starts next year. Now, 78% of you disagree with me, but I'm okay with that. Uh, and you're probably uh, going to still disagree with me, uh, but I'm okay with that because really, uh, who cares? It's Sunday and we're together to worship. Uh, and we have Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. But welcome to a new year and maybe to a new decade. Uh, I want to remind us about what we were doing in the last decade, uh, right in December as we were ending the year, because we've been traveling, people have been coming and going, and we did some important things, and we're going to start the year with what I think are some very important things about Jesus. So in December, we launched a home point campaign called Word 511. And that means being in the Word of God five times a week and once a week sharing with your spouse what you're learning and once a week sharing with everyone in your home what you're learning. And so if you were traveling and didn't get a chance to get the packet of materials, they, they have them still back here in the Home Point Center and you're welcome to get those. And we hope that they'll be useful to you. When we launched that campaign, we did a preaching series for three weeks. We talked about Bible study and we had made these three points and then today we're going to pick up and re-engage those, but in a different way. So let me summarize them again. The three things were, were these. First of all, all Bible study is about meeting Jesus. All the Bible leads to him and flows from him. The Bible is about meeting Jesus. And then we talked in the next two weeks about two things that happen to people when they meet Jesus through their Bible study. And the first is that they learn to accept others because of the love Jesus has. And the second is they learn to accept God's plan for where they are at in life and what's happening in their life uh, because they know that God loves them and is with them. So we did this in our Word 511 series, and then for two weeks we talked about uh, Christmas-themed texts. We talked about Jesus being born into the world as Emmanuel, God with us. And we talked about, uh, in Hebrews chapter 2, some of what it means that he came into the world as a human, as a man. And so we're going to pick up there this month. In January, we're going to talk about meeting Jesus through the scriptures as he came into the world. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit more about what it means for him to have come in the incarnation, which is the word that just means he came in the flesh. He came as a person, as a man. Uh, what does that mean? And so that's what we're going to do today and over the next couple of weeks. What are the implications for the church today that Jesus came into the world? So I want to start off with a prayer. Uh, and then we'll begin. Would you bow with me? Father, we thank you that you have secured our eternity and that our souls are safe with you. In fact, our bodies are safe with you, even though now they're um, sometimes riddled with pain and they're aging and cancer gets in them and there is times when violence is done to them. God, we know that our bodies and our souls are secure with you. 
uh, because you've promised us a resurrection and because you hold us in the palm of your hand. You have become our Father. We are your sons and daughters, and for that we are eternally grateful. And Father, we pray that you would allow your peace that passes understanding to settle on this church and on all of your churches throughout this land. God, would you allow peace to reign uh, at times of worship in this nation. God, we pray that you would make that so and that you would give us that blessing. Uh, Father, we thank you that you have loved us and called us your own. Now, please be with us as we open our Bibles and study together today from the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Would you help us to hear what you want us to hear and to meet Jesus through these words? It's in his name that we pray, and together we all say, Amen. This painting is by Rembrandt. Uh, he was a famous Dutch painter, and he painted this sometime in the 1600s. It is a painting called The Holy Family with Angels. And so Rembrandt did in his day the same thing that uh, an artist did recently in a picture that I showed you in the month of December. In the month of December, we looked at this picture of a modern-day Mary and Joseph sitting outside of a gas station. Well, in this painting, uh, which in its, you know, kind of old world style has all this dark space and just a little bit of light space he paints Mary and the baby Jesus here in the foreground in what was a modern Dutch home in Amsterdam of his day and time so this is this looks old 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 to us but for Rembrandt this was new 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 modern and this is a woman in her home with a kind of a, a cradle, a rocking cradle there of, of their, their style and their day. And in the background, now I've cropped this out, you can't see it, so you have to imagine, but in the background of this very large, wide painting is Joseph, and he's back there doing some carpentry. He's cutting out a yoke, and then there are some flying babies up in the corner. Uh, they're actually cherubs, right? They're little angels flying around, but uh, he's got, so he's got these elements of what he thinks the angels might have looked like, and it's all very interesting, but I wanted to foreground here his version of modern Mary and, and modern baby Jesus, and look at just a few things with me here. Uh, Mary is holding in her left hand a well-worn and thumbed-through book, and we assume that Rembrandt meant for this to be the Bible, She's got the Bible in one hand, the Word of God, and yet in the other hand, she is pulling back and looking at the Word of God in the flesh, the one who has come incarnate, Jesus. Uh, in the background, what you can't really see where Joseph is making that yoke, uh, people have assumed that what Ram, Rembrandt is referring to is a couple of passages of Scripture, one in Isaiah that talks about uh, God's yoke, and another one when Jesus famously invited people. So he's in the flesh, he's come into the world, he's the incarnate God, and he invites people, he says, Come to me if you are weary. My burden is light, my yoke is easy. And then he says this most wonderful thing. He says, You'll find rest for your souls. I am gentle and humble in heart. And here is Mary, looking at the Bible in the one hand, which is today, this is, this is the, the tool that you and I have available to meet Jesus. So we've got our Bibles here, but she's trying to look at the, the Word of God in the flesh below her right hand and understand what it means in these pages. 
to, to be a Lord who is gentle and humble in heart. That this little baby who came truly so humbly into the world would be so powerful, the king of all the universe, and yet he'll do it with gentleness and humility. Wow. You know, as I have been reflecting on this, I've thought there is probably, certainly, been no one in history who held in their hands more authority than Jesus and yet more humility than Jesus and gentleness. This is our Lord. And she had a chance to look at him. Now, in a sense, this is what we're trying to do as we meet him again in John chapter 1 this morning, is try to catch a glimpse of Jesus. And so when we talked through uh, the birth story in Matthew two weeks ago, and then when we talked through Hebrews chapter 2 last week, we made these two points about Jesus coming into the world. The first one was, his name, his prophetic name, Emmanuel, means God with us. And we need this because we need to know that we're not alone. We need God's presence with us forever in a tangible way. So this is one implication of the incarnation. Another impl implication is the second one, that by sharing in our humanity, he helped make us one family. This is Hebrews chapter two, that you and I have become sons and daughters of God because Jesus shared in humanity with us. So these are important implications. And today I want you to see that in John chapter one, these are echoed. And I'm gonna go through this part really fast because I wanna get to our new implication, the third one that's for today. But here's a little bit of review. John chapter one, verses nine uh, to 18, talks about Jesus coming into the world and in these first verses on the screen in front of you, it shows us that he came to be with us. Okay, so that first point is echoed. God with us. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And he was in the world. Look at the dynamic tension between those two verses. In verse 9, he was coming into the world. It was motion. It was power. It was movement. And in verse 10, he was in the world. This is the way that John tells the story that Matthew and Luke tell as the birth stories of Jesus. We have these traditional Christmas readings where the, the animals are in there and the shepherds come and Mary and Joseph are all around the baby and we sing our silent nights or whatever. But John tells the story of the birth of Jesus too. And when he tells it, he tells it in these words right here. He was a powerful light. He was moving. He was coming into the world. And then suddenly he was in the world. And that's how John tells about the virgin birth is right there. And there's a problem. The world, even though it was made through him, didn't recognize him. He came to those who were his own. And most specifically, that means the Jewish people, the Israelites, but it also means all humanity, the people that he made. But they did not receive him. See, this is point one. He came to be with us. This is John's way of saying it. Uh, but we didn't recognize him. Point two was that he shared in our humanity to help us be sons and daughters, right? You remember this? We want to be children of God. Jesus did this for us. Look at how John says it. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So here is the second implication 
of the incarnation. Jesus came to make us a family, to make us the sons and daughters of God. John is familiar with this. He's been mulling this over for years by the time he writes his gospel down. He's been thinking about what difference does it make that Jesus came as a man. And these are two of the things that came to his mind. But he has this great third thing that he shows us. And I want to share it with you today. And this is the point. Jesus came in the flesh to reveal the unseen God. Because there's a problem for us in that God is a spirit and we don't see him with our eyes. We don't touch him with our hands. We don't know him. And this problem has plagued humanity. Let me ask you to think about for a minute what happens to humanity, to the world, when we're struggling through believing in a God or gods that we don't see. Several things can happen. One is that some people live with great certainty that they know exactly who God is and they are oppressive towards people who disagree with them and maybe even it leads to violence and broken relationships because they want everyone to agree with how I believe God is. That's one thing that happens with an unseen God. But another thing that happens, and maybe is more common right now in our little world here, is this. A lot of people just throw their arms up and go, well, so what? Who, who even cares? I mean, if you can't see and prove God to me with tests and with science, then who are you to say anything is true at all? We can't know what is true, so stop pushing your values and your beliefs on people. And we live in a world that struggles between this religious, like, crazy oppression and violence and warfare and people that are going on jihads, and then we have other people just going, who cares? And in that crazy world, we need somebody who will show us reveal to us the unseen God. But we need more than that. We need somebody who can do it and stay humble and not get violent and be gentle. So John says this, the word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. Eugene Peterson in the message wrote it this way, he moved into the neighborhood We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Now, I usually highlight words in yellow that I want you to, to spend particular attention on, so I've got a lot of them today. Let me move kind of quickly through a few of them. Uh, the word became flesh is one of the most important phrases in all of the New Testament because this flew in the face of the Greeks, the Gentiles, many of whom, because of their philosophies of the day, believed that spirit and flesh were completely incompatible and that God would never participate with his created world or with created things because it's all corrupt and it's below divinity to participate in the world. That we are corrupt and crumbling and failing and that true things are spiritual things. And in the face of that, John, after decades of meditating on what Jesus meant and the implications, he says, no, in Jesus, the word became flesh. So the Greeks are scandalized by this. And then he scandalizes the Jews. He says, and made his dwelling among us, which is the same Greek words that you would use to translate the Hebrew places in the Hebrew Bible where it talks about the tabernacle. It says that he placed his tent 
among us. He tabernacled with us. Now, if you don't know the history of the Bible, this is going to seem a little obscure to you, but for those of you who know about the tabernacle, you know that for the Jewish religion, this was the most important place in creation. The tabernacle was the tent of meeting where heaven and earth overlapped, where Moses uh, and later when the high priest could go in and they could meet with God like face to face so that Moses would come out and his face was radiating with the glory of having been in the presence of God. And later the high priest can only even go in once a year to the innermost room of this place and then with great precaution so that he doesn't die because it's a big deal when heaven and earth overlap. And this scandalizes the Jews because in that one phrase, he says, the tabernacle became a person. Heaven and earth overlapped permanently and forever in the person and the body of Jesus. So the the Gentiles and the Jews, they're all scandalized by this truth of the incarnation. But what does it mean? Can he be the humble Lord who does this in a way that helps us to know God and still be full of truth and grace? So look at the next words. Uh, These are going to all come up at the end of today's reading. We've seen his glory. Now, when you think of the word glory, I wonder what you think of. I recently had somebody ask me, what do I think of when I hear the word glory? And, you know, the things that come to mind are like shining stuff. I don't know where I got that from. Uh, the, The word glory in Hebrew actually means heavy. It means weight. It's somebody's weightiness. It what, it's what makes them matter. But I often think of it as something that's just like, you know, radiating or shining like heaven opens up and there's beams of light and it's the glory of God. Here's a funny thing about John's gospel. He talks a lot about light and darkness. He talks a lot about Jesus being the light of the world but he only uses the word glory a few times, and it's in these verses right here. And then later, every time that Jesus is uh, going to talk about his glory, it has to do with the cross, his crucifixion, not with like beams of light that are knocking people over or shocking them or blinding them. It has to do with his cross. But we've seen his glory, John said, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I just want you to note, right now, just notice the words. Okay, we're coming back to them. Notice the words, one and only Son. We're going to come back to that. Notice the words, He came from the Father. That's going to be really important in just a minute. And notice the phrase, full of grace and truth. We're coming back to all of those little phrases. Just circle them or mark them, because we're coming back to them. But look at the word truth. This is why we need somebody to reveal an unseen God. We're struggling through a world in which people aren't sure what the truth is. In fact, a lot, of, a lot of you even who grew up going to church and reading the Bible might be struggling with what is the truth. There's this great moment in John's gospel where Pilate, the Roman governor who has Jesus on trial and is about to make the decision whether to condemn him to death or not, is looking at Jesus in the face. He actually gets to do what Mary is doing in the painting, what you and I just long to do. He's actually looking at Jesus in the face in the courtroom there, in his palace. And he says to him, to the face of Jesus, what is truth? This is such a postmodern kind of question from Pilate. This has so much like existential meaning here. 
This is the, the question our world is crying with and bleeding with right now. What is truth? And Pilate at this moment has standing before him not a what is truth, but a who is true. Jesus of Nazareth, the one true revelation of God. And as I thought about this, that in John's gospel, Jesus came to bring us truth, but Pilate's looking him in the face and going, but what is truth? I was thinking about this verse from the Old Testament. Micah 6, verse 8. Write that down. Micah 6, verse 8. And I, I thought about this so much that I almost changed my sermon to be about that verse instead of about this, but I decided we'll do it another time. Micah 6, 8, that says, What does God demand of people? Is that we act with justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. And notice the key word there. What is truth? God says, what do you need to know? What am I asking of you, people? To do what's just, to show mercy to people, and to walk with God humbly. And that's the key word, isn't it? Not just to walk with God with confidence and with zeal and with passion that leads to disruption in the world, but with humility. And, and not to stop walking with God where you go, we don't even know if this is true and you can't prove it to me. And to have false humility, but to walk with God with some confidence and true humility. That is to have grace and truth. And so this is what John is talking about. Now, in the text, uh, the author, John, takes a slight uh, interlude here. Okay? And he talks about John the Baptist. It's important you understand this is a different John, the cousin of Jesus the Baptist. Uh, and he talks about him, he just says, John the Baptist testified about Jesus. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke of when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Now, this was important at this moment in, in the gospel because what John, the author, is doing is just making sure that you know that John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, knew that Jesus was preexistent God, that he didn't just start at the moment of the virgin birth, that he had been in eternity God. He's just making sure you know that. But look at then the words that I had asked you to note that, that come back up. Out of Jesus' fullness... We've all received grace in place of grace already given. I asked you to mark that phrase, grace and truth. Okay, here it is. In Jesus, we've received grace in place of grace already given. What does he mean? He means not just that God has shown us like forgiveness and mercy, but that he keeps pouring abundantly grace into our lives. Every time you open up your Bible and you're looking for the word made flesh in it and you're trying to understand who Jesus is, you get even more grace because God is patient with you. He knows that we're not perfectly understanding who he is, so he gives us time and he gives us friends that help us understand the word of God and he gives us patience. He shows us mercy. He gives us constant, continual forgiveness of our sins. If we're walking in the light as he is in the light, his blood continually cleanses us of all sin. Just grace after grace after grace. And it says this comes from the fullness of Jesus. But what it means to be humbly walking with God means that he's just able to pour out. He has an abundance, an overflow of grace. 
We got this law from Moses. The law from Moses taught us a lot about God. Who is the unseen God? You can learn a lot about him through the law. Uh, for instance, think just about the Ten Commandments. God is a God who doesn't want people to murder. God is a God who does want people to honor their father and mother. God is the only God, and he wants his only godness to be recognized and, and maintained. He doesn't want people throwing other false gods out there. And he wants his name to be used honorably. These are all things you can learn from the law. The problem is, is when you learn those things about who God is, you still don't know everything you need to know to walk humbly with him. And so we're given grace upon grace already given. The law was given through Moses. We've been taught a lot about what God wants, but now we're given grace on top of grace, that in Jesus we get grace and truth. We find the resource for humility with our truth in Jesus, the gentle and humble at heart. And so John says this, no one has ever seen God. Okay? All of us are equal on this. Uh, the Muslims in the world haven't seen him. The Jews haven't seen him. The Christians haven't seen him. The atheists haven't seen him. Uh, the people that do the Baha'i thing, they haven't seen him. The Hindus haven't seen him. Nobody has seen God. Everybody has claims. Everybody has faith claims. Some people, it's that they know God. Some people, their claim is that there is no God. Everybody's got beliefs, but nobody has seen him. But look at this. The one and only son, same phrase that I asked you to mark earlier, the monogenes, the only son of God, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. John is dealing with a mystery that it's hard to even speak. He says, what do we say about Jesus? He is himself God, and yet he has to be described as being in the embrace of the Father, at the side of the Father. The actual Greek words here mean most literally like he's in his chest, or what they would mean in the Greek is that he's being embraced by him. He says, how do I, how do I speak this mystery? What does it take to be the person who can say with authority who God is and be the most humble about it. He says there's only one that could have done it. It's the one who himself from eternity is God, so he can speak with authority about what it means to be God. He can reveal the unseen God, and yet he is in the embrace of the Father from all eternity, which means that he knows what it means to be held by God. And that's his resource for humility. He knows what it means to be loved. He, Jesus is eternally hugged. And that's why he's humble. And this is the one who's made him known. When we say things about the Bible, like God wants this or God says that, let's be careful to make sure that all of our claims are being routed through and being framed by Jesus of Nazareth, the only one who has ever shown us who God really is. All of the Bible talks to us about God, but only in Jesus is God perfectly portrayed, truthfully and with grace. Now, the same John later will write uh, some more documents, and I just want to show you one thing as we kind of wrap this up today to help us, help the church. What do we do next? So here, John had said, no one's ever seen God but. No one's ever seen God but. 
And then after the but comes, but Jesus, the one and only Son, he's revealed him. But in a letter that John writes later in his life, he says this, no one has ever seen God but. He uses the exact same phrase. But now he's writing to the church about how you and I are supposed to live out Sunday afternoon and Monday through Saturday and all the rest. And so he says, no one has ever seen God but. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. What does this mean? It means that Jesus perfectly revealed God through his humility and his truth because of who he was. He's the perfect revelation of God. But you and I get a chance to participate with him in pulling back the cover and showing the true God to the world. Okay? Now we have choices about how we can do it. We can rip back the cover and we can show God to the world and we can do it uh, with pride and arrogance and with judgment and lash out at them. Or we can pull the cover back and show God to the world but, but be real wishy-washy and go, but we don't know if this is true and you don't really have to believe this and it you know everybody's truth is good for them we could take one of those approaches but we probably shouldn't what we want to do is to try to live in this world like Jesus no one's ever seen God but if we love one another God would be alive in us and this is how his love is made complete in us so that we can have confidence on the day of judgment in this world we're like Jesus our whole life and our whole mission and our whole work is about trying to capture him in the frame and see what he's doing at this moment. He hands something to somebody, some food, and so we try to do that in our life too. He touches the untouchable person, and we try to do it too. He shows mercy to the person who's asking him arrogant questions, and he gives them a chance. He, grace upon grace, and we do it too. In this world, being like Jesus means that we're helping pull the cover back to show the unseen God to the world. And like Jesus, it means moving into neighborhoods. Now, okay, here's the last little bit. Uh, you've maybe been told that you should do a lot of things as a Christian. You've maybe been told you should go on world missions. And you know what? A bunch of you probably should. It might not be for everybody, but a bunch of us ought to. We ought to get out in the world and share Jesus. Pull the cover back. A lot of you have been told that to be a really good Christian, you need to be doing evangelistic personal Bible studies. And you know what? Probably a lot of us should be doing that. It may not be everybody's talent, but a lot of us should be getting the Bible with people and sitting down and presenting it to them. And maybe you've been told a lot of other things that you should do, and you might live with all of this, have I done enough? Have I done enough? Well, just start here. Jesus moved into the neighborhood. Wherever God has planted you, whether he's called you to an international country or whether he's called you to a neighborhood in the city of Bentonville or a little suburb in Bella Vista or Centerton or Pea Ridge, wherever he has you, trying to be in the neighborhood like Jesus with grace and truth, humility with what you believe, being strong like Jesus but being gentle and humble like Jesus, pulling back the little curtain. I just love what Mary's doing in this picture. Uh, now that we've got our son at home and we take him out in public and we bring him to church, he's usually here at second service, uh, we have him in his carrier. And we usually have a blanket over because two reasons. One, if he's sleeping, you want to give him a dark space and help him sleep as long as he can because as young parents, you're just like, please, God, all we want for Christmas is sleep. 
And the other reason is you're like, don't touch my kid, right? Like, you're like, keep, you know, sharing is great, you know, but not germs, right? And so you got this whole thing going on. Here, Mary, at that moment, she's pulling that coverlet back. This is what it means to live in the neighborhood with grace and truth. We're looking at the word of God. We're looking for Jesus. And with humility, with the truth that we find, we're trying to be people who bring grace upon grace to those around us next door, around the world, wherever we're at. Let's do it together. God can strengthen us. He can help us. The Spirit of God is with us. Amen? Let's stand and sing our invitation song.